Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hamid has a flashlight. Mia doesn't, so she pounds along after him, panting up Avenue Q2 and dodging left as her squad gathers for the next attack. The new tents have gone up over the last four days, hundreds, maybe a thousand, dozens of new streets named in fluorescent signs at the crossings, perfect for the game. This is G.P. Gottlieb, host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I'm talking to Bruce Holsinger about his latest novel, The Displacements. The book opens with children running past hundreds, maybe thousands of tents, playing the game they call range, which happens every night when the sun goes down. They're in a camp for evacuees following a devastating hurricane. The story centers on Daphne, whose husband, a doctor, can't be reached when the family rushes out the door before the storm hits. The car runs out of gas, and Daphne dreams of her beautiful home as they trudge for miles. Later, in the mega camp for evacuees, she starts to realize that something is terribly wrong in her life when a volunteer shows her that her bank accounts have been cleaned out, her beautiful home belongs to the bank, and her bank account is completely empty. Hi, Bruce. Thanks for joining me today. It's a pleasure, Khalid. I'm, I'm really thrilled to be talking with you. So I started reading your book just days after Hurricane Ian completely destroyed the Fort Myers Beach home mm. my in-laws lived in for 55 years. What mm-hmm. inspired you to imagine a Category 6 hurricane? Well, you know, I've always been obsessed with, uh, you know, stories of downward mobility. And, you know, climate change is one of those those problems that's affecting so many people. It's, you know, I've, I've read so many books about the disproportionate effects of of climate change and displacement on um, disadvantaged communities, poor communities. But, you know, it, it occurred to me when I was when I was thinking about this novel that you know, we don't see a lot of, of stories about the kind of pervasiveness of the climate emergency, you know, across socioeconomic scales. And so I, you know, I was thinking about South Florida, the the amount of wealth down there. I was thinking about problems of insurance and um, and so on, and and, and family stability and and precarity. Um, so I, I wanted to, uh, you know, the storm, this Category Six hurricane, Hurricane Luna, um, as imagined in the novel, it's the world's first Category Six storm, and the story, you know, it could take be taking place next week. It could play, take place in a year from now, five years from now. I leave that a little bit up in the air, but mostly I wanted to kind of embody this this uh, this moment of kind of looming and ever present catastrophe that we're in, but without writing a dystopian novel, without writing a novel that was set far in the future in a hopeless world. You know, I wanted to, to tell a story of catastrophe that would also be a story of resilience and hope, how people bounce back. Um, And so this is, this is what I came up with. 
Hmm, how did you invent the amazing game that hordes of children play in the mega shelter? Oh, yeah. So this is at the be- very beginning of the novel. It opens kind of in Medias Race. You're seeing, I guess, maybe week three, I think I, I call it, um, where where these this family is in this ends up in this mega shelter in Oklahoma. And the kids are you know, they, they find their own way of coping with things. And so when, when, when the novel opens, you see these kids playing this game called range, they're broken up into squads. They all have different parts of this mega shelter, essentially a huge tent city with 10,000 people in it displaced from South Florida and from Houston. And they're, um, you know, they're, they're, they're playing this game and that, Part of that was really inspired by my own experiences as, as a parent moving to a free range neighborhood, seeing how my kids ran around and met all these other kids and played their own games. And, um, you know, it occurred to me reading a lot about refugee camps, about um, large shelters on all over the world. One thing that we often don't talk about is the importance of play. You know, we think of uh, families in these tragic situations um, of deprivation and so on. And of course they are, but they're also, you know, everybody's got to get through the day. And suddenly kids are thrust into this environment where they're meeting dozens or hundreds of other kids their age. And one of the main characters from from the uh, point of view of the, the prologue, um, Mia, back at her school in Miami, she was being bullied and, and she, you know, in, in this really nasty social situation. And suddenly she's in this, this shelter, you know, that's scary. It's terrifying. People have lost everything, but, but she gains friends and that's, that's an important strand. And so that's, that's the inspiration for the game. Mm, Can you say a bit about your protagonist? Yeah. Daphne Larson Hall. So Daphne is, it took me a long time to settle on her. You know, my the protagonist of my last book was a pediatric neurologist. She was a very high-powered scientist and academic and mom. That book was called The Gifted School, and she was very invested in her daughter's um, academic achievement and so on. And and um, Daphne is a, a slightly different kind of of parent. She's you know, she's very concerned about her kids, but she's um, she's more relaxed. She's got this difficult relationship with her son-in-law, um, Gavin, who is a, a recently dropped out of Stanford and is now home, living up in the attic, living over her studio. In fact, she's an artist, so she's a ceramicist. Uh, you know, just getting very prominent. Her husband's a surgeon at, at, at one of the Miami University hospitals. So she has time. She has luxury to be able to work on her art. And she's just rising in the art world. She's just becoming really prominent. She has her first solo show in a, in a South Beach of Miami gallery, right as Hurricane Luna is forming off the coast of Africa. And her entire, you learn this early on, her entire life's work is destroyed. Um, and so finding that the resources to keep going, you know, she saves only one piece of her ceramic sculpture that, that has an important role later in the novel. Um, but, you know, she becomes, you know, when, when she's, when she's at the mega shelter in Oklahoma, she is very much, you know, lost. And, and finally she discovers, a, a way to make art again. That's a key turning point in the novel. Mm-hmm. We meet Lorraine. She works for FEMA, flies to coordinate the response. If there's anyone who's totally good in this novel, it's her. Can you say more? Yeah. So, well, I wouldn't say totally good because she has her darker side. You know, she blows up at her daughter at one point. She's, um, you know, she kind of loses it. She can't quite 
you know, she's, she's balancing everything, but, you know, I, I, I wanted to have a character who was a, a relief worker. We often don't see that perspective. And I did a lot of research into what that looks like, um, befriended a few people who've worked for the United Nations in relief camps and, um, you know, people who, who work on disaster relief in the United States. And, you know, I wanted that perspective, but I didn't want her to be just a kind of stuck character. So I had to really think about her hard. She's ex-military. She's used to kind of running large groups of people in, in the intensely organizational ways. But she also gets very frustrated with government bureaucracy. So she, this, this shelter that's set up in Oklahoma that the, the displacements imagines that's at the center of the novel, this is a, a joint venture between FEMA and the Red Cross. You know, FEMA being part of the federal government, the Red Cross being a non-governmental organization. And they have to find ways of work. Those organizations have to find ways of working with each other. And Rain can often get frustrated with the government red tape, but she also, um, you know, enjoys working with other organizations because they allow her to, you know, cut some corners and figure out kind of compromises. But I, I wanted to have her, you know, there's this one scene where I imagine her, waiting for all of the evacuees, the internally displaced persons, IDPs, to show up at Thule Farm, which is what this mega shelter is called. She's standing on the top of the hill. She's looking down at this new tent city that she's built with the help of all these workers and these volunteers. And and she gets this almost excited feeling like waiting for, just like she's a camp counselor waiting for the kids to arrive. And that, you know, I came to that at the end of that chapter, just after talking to a lot of people in, in that world who, you know, are just so, you know, they work so hard to, to relieve people, to make the world a better place for people who have lost everything. But there also can be a kind of drive and an excitement to that work. And I wanted to convey that in the displacements. Hmm. Yeah, you did. You did. Okay. Uh, Tate, he's all about risk and reward, yeah. totally opposite from rain. Yeah. He's in a, um, insurance agent and more. Can you say more about him? Yeah. So Tate Bondurant, he was a fun character to write, even though he's uh, the, in some ways the most unredeemable character in the novel. He, he sells insurance in, um, in Houston, you know, before in the, in the years before the hurricane comes. Um, he has a kid who's, who's been through some really hard developmental delays. He, he's kind of a, a derelict father. He doesn't spend much time with his kid. He, um, he also sells drugs on the side and, you know, he's, he's really resentful. He, he listens to podcasts by, you know, a figure kind of like Jordan Peterson. You see him listening to the podcast when he's driving around in his car, selling drugs and, and being resentful of the woke world. Um, you know, he's that kind of white guy and, um, you know, but he also has this kind of capacity for, you know, seeing people as they are. And I really had a great time thinking about, you know, him, you know, he comes into this mega shelter under a, an assumed name with his girlfriend. He's selling drugs. He, he gets somebody else to sell drugs for him. Um, and he's also just cheating people out of the rest of what they have. So he, you know, poses a kind of, you know, insurance advisor, financial advisor, but he's also screwing people left and right. Um, and so he's, uh, He's a kind of rough character, but he's also, I wouldn't say he has a soft side, but he does have a bit of a sentimental side. And you see that with his interactions with some other characters, particularly Gavin. Mm -hmm. It was already realistic sounding in light of 
uh, Hurricane Ian that just happened, but you added the Great Displacement Chronicle. Can you talk about it? Yeah, yeah. So, okay. So one of the problems that I have with this, you know, writing this novel as kind of a craft problem is... So I'm telling this story about Daphne and her her family and a couple of other viewpoint characters. You know, I'm telling a story about just a small number of individuals, but it's the world's first Category 6 hurricane. It destroys two major American cities. It really destroys them. Um, absolutely, you know, rips Miami Beach in several parts, turns it into a huge archipelago um, rather than a couple of islands. It destroys skyscrapers. It displaces hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people permanently. And so how do you tell that big national story while you're also focusing on just one family, you know, the dilemmas, the tribulations of one family? And and so I wanted to figure out a way to do that. And, and so I, I introduced into this, the framework of the novel this project. It's called The Great Displacement, an oral, no, a digital chronicle of the Luna migration. The Great Displacement, a digital chronicle of the Luna migration. And you see it maybe seven or eight times throughout the novel. And it's in the form of a website. And you see basically screenshots of the website, only four or five pages at a time. But you see um, oral testimonials from from people who were displaced who are not in the, the main framework of the novel. You see charts and graphs where you see like uh, diagrams of where people came from and where they went after they were in the mega shelter. Um, you see all kinds of resources that that may help you understand the the this huge diaspora and this catastrophe. And the conceit is that it's, um, the device is that it's written from the point of view of maybe seven or eight years in the future. So someone has put together, you find out who puts together this project because she's a character in the novel, but they're doing it in retrospect. So you're seeing all this stuff as if it happened a while ago, kind of like on the model of Studs Terkel's Hard Times, you know, that kind of history. Um, that's the, the model, you know, testimonials, um, you know, oral testimonies about Chernobyl and so on. That's the genre that, that inspires this. But I wanted to have that big picture so that people could think about it that way in addition to the small story of this family. So uh, can you say a little about what happens to when the government decides they don't want to help after three months. Yeah. Well, I don't want to, you know, create too many spoilers for your listeners, but you know, the, there, there's a, a limited amount of patience in, in relief work that's sponsored by governments. I mean, think about something like COVID, right? COVID kills, has killed over a well over now a million Americans and our, our own president just a couple weeks ago said, you know, the pandemic is over. And, the, you know, that the, the idea of attention spans and people refusing to wear masks and, you know, governments deciding they're going to pull back and not, um, you know, not, uh, you know, have the government as, as in public health departments as uh, interventionist as they have been. And that's just a pandemic that rolled over a couple of years. Whereas you, you imagine a great massive disaster, the ideas in the novel is that, you know, yes, initially everyone's really worried about these, these, these poor displaced people in, in these mega shelters, you know, but eventually, you know, people get tired of it. What's, you know, Oklahoma doesn't have a huge population. What are they going to do with 10,000 new people living in Oklahoma? Where are the, where's the money going to come from? Where are the resources are going to come from? How, you know, how are they going to serve these people and how much, 
in a in a government where you know that we're in this deeply politically divided state you know are are people really going to fund these things anymore you know once you know once the disaster um you know, as a few months in the in the rearview mirror, how willing are people going to stay? You know, both at the state and federal level, and even at the populist level, to continue to care for their fellow citizens. And so that's a, that's a really interesting problem in relief work, and it's one that you know the novel is not an op ed. Um, it's it's a work of imagination. It's not preachy about these kinds of things, you know. But I do think about how you know, how they work and, and, you know, try to think realistically about, you know, the public will about governments and so on. Scary. Yeah, Daphne's mother-in-law, mm-hmm. Daphne's mother-in-law shows up at the mega shelter and she lived in a continuum, continuum of care building like my mother and similarly paid half a million dollars to live there. Yeah. But they told her that since her monthly payment was behind. She wasn't allowed to be evacuated yeah. with the rest. It was shocking. Can well, you say more? Yeah. So this is the the mother-in-law, Flo, um, Daphne's mother-in-law, the grandchildren of her kids. And, um, you know, I wanted to deal with with elder care and those kinds of issues and, and how um, how it might affect a family in a catastrophe like this. So she, um, I won't say why, but she ends up getting, you know, she is evacuated, but she's not allowed to stay in the new facility for very long because she's behind on her payment and, you know, she's going to have to go to a public home and she ends up finding her way back to her family. That's not, it's not much of a spoiler, but, um, you know, I wanted to, to engage with those kinds of issues because I think we, you know, the, the you think about a place like Florida and the, the, the vast majority of the victims of Hurricane Ian of, of those who died were um, old people who died and, because they, you know, they couldn't get out of their homes. Maybe they didn't have the resources or the wherewithal to evacuate. And that's going to become more and more common in a place like Florida, which has a very large retired retirement age population. You know, those are huge problems. And, uh, you know, you know yeah. in writing this novel, I had to think about in writing the displacements, I really, it was a really 360 view of things. You know, you can't populate your novel with 10,000 characters, but I did want to, you know, I, I wanted to think of it through the lens of this one family that's just trying to get through this thing, you know, and they're not coming from, they're not homeless at the beginning. They're not poor at the beginning. They're, they're upper class. They live in a gated community on, um, on the shore of Biscayne Bay. And that's precisely what, what I wanted to do is think about this kind of um, crisis and what it'll mean for, you know, a family like that, that may not be as stable as it thinks. And, and, you know, imagining the role of Flo, the grandmother was part of that. Okay. So my takeaway is just don't go to Florida, (laughs) but, (laughs) but this can happen in so many places. Yeah, no, it's true. You know, the Gold Coast of Australia and, you know, um, these, you know, gorgeous forest communities in California and Colorado. It's just, you know, it's already happening and it'll mm-hmm. just keep happening. One more question. Yeah. I know you have another book coming out next year from your bio. Yeah. Uh, what are you working on now? Yeah. So that book that you're talking about, it's it's called On Parchment and it's actually an academic book. It's uh, uh, published by Yale University Press and it's about the long history of, of parchment, which is the 
the medieval equivalent of paper. It's the animal skin that that um, was the medium for writing for for a long, long time. Um, so it's a book that that thinks about that um, in in a lot of different ways: historically, theologically, biologically, um, ecologically, and so on. And now I'm working on another novel. It, it treats some similar similar themes to the displacements and my last novel, The Gifted School. Um, and it, it is, is also set in the very, very near future. And it, it thinks about affluence, extreme affluence and its consequences. That's all I can say for now. Wow. Well, okay. I'm, I've already told three people to, that they have to read your book. Oh, good, so good. I think <laughs> I thought it was wonderful. Thank you so much for talking to me today, Bruce. It's been a pleasure. Jaleed, thank you. It's been uh, really wonderful to, to, to be on your podcast. Thanks so much for having me. And thank you for joining me today. Again, this is G.P. Gottlieb, author of the Whipped and Sipped Mystery Series and host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I've been talking to Bruce Holsinger, author of The Displacements. Hope you all have a good book to cuddle up with. Happy reading. <laughs>